Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Kate Killian for the second time. Kate is a pediatric registered dietitian and PhD student passionate about nutrition for picky eaters. This passion has led Kate to present her doctoral research on determinants of diet quality at several international conferences, most recently including the American Society for Nutrition. Kate currently accepts health insurance for one-on-one nutrition counseling in her private practice, Killian Family Nutrition. Outside of work, Kate posts regular child nutrition tips on TikTok and enjoys reading, staying active, and spending time outside. In the episode, Kate discusses the division of responsibility in feeding, what to do if your kid only wants to eat chicken nuggets, strategies for dealing with picky eaters, and more. If you're liking this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write a review and share it with a friend. Enjoy the episode. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me again on the Health Investment Podcast. Hey, Brooke. I'm so excited to be back. I'm excited to have you. For listeners, I will link in the show notes Kate's original episode where we talked about wellness myths and a bunch of stuff that circulates on social media and just, you know, how you can kind of separate myth from fact yourself and accounts to follow, red flags. So I will link that episode in the show notes of this episode. And also, if you want to hear Kate's explanation of her background and how she became a dietitian, you can refer to that episode. But I guess for this episode and for the intentions we have today, can you share specifically what led you to start focusing on concerns around feeding children? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think I went into this in our last episode, but I had always worked with kids. Like from the time I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be an occupational therapist and got involved in kind of uh, social skills classes for kids, I would call them. And from there, progressed into my nutrition degree, still kept doing these little volunteer opportunities with kids on the side, eventually worked in special education. So the theme had been kids, and I just hadn't really put two and two together until I actually started working in nutrition and really fell into child nutrition research. So I'm a doctoral student at the University of Connecticut, and some of the research again, that I just fell into happened to be around an intervention to help improve diet quality in preschool age kids. And so with that, I started doing a lot of work and research in that area and found that I actually really loved it. And so I, at that point, knew that I could lean into it, learn a lot, and then actually start practicing with kids instead of adults. Oh, awesome. And you now have a practice that's up and running? 
Yes, I do. As of recently. Yeah. So I started a private practice based in Massachusetts where I can accept health insurance to provide nutrition counseling. So kids of a variety of ages, um, anywhere from the time they're eating food all the way to the time they're adults and would see an adult dietitian and for a variety of nutrition concerns. Though I would say that I specialize in things like picky eating, especially among um, autistic kids and otherwise neurodivergent kids. Mm. This might be a stupid question, but if you, if somebody has an issue feeding their four-year-old, let's say, do you work mostly with the four-year-old or do you work with the parent? (laughs) You know, that's funny. I have had a lot of people ask me that. And I would say right now I'm primarily operating in telehealth, in which case I'm working with the parent. In the future, I would love to do a little bit of both, but I would love a couple extra certifications to give context. Some kids who are really struggling with eating will do what we'd call feeding therapy. And that would be a little bit more intensive working with the child to help them get used to the sensory characteristics of food and doing different exercises. And that obviously would be with the child. But at this point, what I do is a lot of coaching with the parent about mm-hmm. tips among about how to incorporate some of those strategies themselves, in addition to making sure that they're getting the nutrients they need, despite whatever medical challenges they might have going on, and then using nutrition to manage the whatever conditions they might have in addition to just picky eating. So if mm-hmm. let's say they have a kidney disease, we might talk about nutrition for kidney disease or any other condition that they might come in with. Mm-hmm. It seems so daunting. I don't have kids yet, but to think about, you know, we feed ourselves and sometimes that alone can feel like a challenge. But then when you're trying to feed a growing human and not pass on kind of food stuff to them, oh, and I, yeah. it seems very challenging. <laughs> oh yeah. I feel like you know, I got into nutrition thinking that I would be talking like all science all the time. And then I realized that talking about nutrition, especially in child nutrition, I'm realizing you talk a lot about what the parents stuff is around Mm -hmm. food and how to navigate that while trying to not pass it on to your child. Cause I think a lot of parents are really self-aware about it and don't want their children to have the same experiences with food that they had growing up, but then don't necessarily know how to undo those patterns that have been baked in for however many years. So it's a, it's a big challenge, but one that I, I care a lot about. And, you know, I, I think it's a place where you can make a lot of strides if you put your attention there. I was hanging out with a friend and her kids the other day, and they had some family friends come over. And it was interesting because I think my friend has one approach to feeding her kids it's like a five-year-old, I think, and a toddler, like a two-year-old. So she has kind of one idea, but then you bring other people into the mix too, and everybody's having dinner. So then other people at the table are commenting on what the kids are eating or what they're not eating. And, you know, I brought dessert, finish your plate. And I was just sitting back and watching and thinking, this is tricky because you and your partner may have one idea about it, but then the kids go to the aunt and uncle's house or the grandparents' house or family friends come over. And the way we speak about food at the table, we're all kind of different and we do have our own stuff. And so then I was just sitting back and watching this and thinking, I don't even know how I would navigate that because it gets really awkward then because people are telling your kids how to eat and what to eat and how much to eat. It's a whole thing. Oh, you hit on my like 
One of my biggest pet peeves. I am firm in the belief that if it's not your child, don't comment on what they're eating. Even if it is your child, we can talk about that later. But I think so many parents struggle with that. You know, they maybe don't want to do the whole finish your plate thing, which I would recommend. But again, another topic. But I think in those cases, it can be really helpful to have the conversations about expectations before you get to the dinner table. You know, sometimes that's not possible, but the earlier you can set those boundaries with the friends, extended family, whoever it may be that, hey, I have my child's eating under control. Like I know what they need. Please don't make a comment. Mm -hmm. The sooner you can do it, the better because kids are just little sponges and they hear everything and they pick up on everything. And we can't, we can't save them from everything. Like they're going to be out in the world, but the best you can create that like a safe bubble around them. So they don't pick up everyone else's food stuff, in my opinion, the better, but Mm -hmm. you know, also acknowledging that that is a really difficult situation for parents to be in, especially depending on your relationships with in-laws or whoever it may be that can, it can get hairy. So, (laughs) And just watching it, I was thinking, this is so interesting because I had a little bit of extra food on my plate that I was kind of pausing and thinking whether or not I was going to finish it. And I was thinking, what if they turned to me and they were like, you have to finish that before you have the dessert. It would be so awkward and weird. And then I'd be eating past a point of feeling full. But I do think that was kind of common practice in the past of, you know, you finish your plate, no matter how much food we've given you or whatever's on it. And from what I see now, it's trending in another direction. While we're on this topic, can you just explain why or why not this is a good or bad strategy? I would absolutely love to. So (laughs) I would start from a biological perspective. So kids, especially young kids, have this innate ability to tell how much food they need to eat. And so kids, much better than adults, can actually self-regulate their intake. And so when we're forcing kids to finish what's on their plate, what we're really teaching them to do is to disengage from their hunger and fullness cues and to instead listen to the cues around them to decide when and how much to eat and what to eat. And so by allowing your child to decide how much to eat, you're really helping them stay in tune with those cues to the best of their ability and as long as possible. So we know that over time, the ability of a child to really sense their hunger and fullness cues and self-regulate their caloric intake, it decreases over time. I don't feel confident in saying whether that is a biological decrease or if it's because of society. Um, Hard to say based on research, but we do know that kids who are given the option to self-regulate, barring any medical concerns, tend to be able to self-regulate extremely well. And sometimes that might look like barely eating at lunch and eating a lot of dinner or not eating much for two days and then having a really big day. And that's fine. It can just be really difficult from a parent perspective to have your child come to the table, eat one bite of food, and then run away and not be like, oh my gosh, he didn't eat anything. He's going to be so hungry later. It's going to be a mess. But but again, really the best you can do to allow them to explore and learn and trust their hunger and fullness cues, the better outcomes they tend to have according to research. Hmm. Yeah, because I am around kids a lot, even though I don't have my own kids. And it sometimes is weird when 
there, you know, you've been playing all day, you've been active, and then it kettles it down at dinner and just touch it and not want to eat it. And so it feels weird to me too, of like, oh, you got to be hungry. You were right. running all afternoon. I, I mean, it's a, I'm sure it's a tricky space to navigate as parents because you want your kid to be well nourished, but at the same yeah. time, you know, you don't want to force food on them. But I mean, do you all, do you want them to eat at least a little something or it's like you said, sometimes they just don't eat anything. Yeah. That's a great question. So I do think this sometimes comes down to the parents' comfort level from my perspective. And, you know, first to acknowledge that I do not yet have kids. I will call myself an aspiring parent would love to in the next few years um, after I'm done with the PhD. But I, you know, I would say at every meal, have at least one food that you know your child likes and consistently mm -hmm. eats. And that way, you know, if they're refusing food, you know, it's because they don't want to eat, not just because they don't like anything on the plate. And that way, if you have, you know, the one food that they like and maybe multiple challenge foods that can increase their taste preferences, that will ensure, again, that their decision to eat or not to eat is based on their hunger and fullness, not based on liking or disliking. And so... If the child comes to the table and doesn't want anything, I would usually recommend a couple of courses of action. One would be saying, okay, you don't have to eat, wrap the plate up, put it in the fridge. And if they come back hungry later, that's their option. They can take what they refused earlier. Um, you know, some people really feel that they can't let their child go without eating. If that's the case that you feel really uncomfortable with it, I would say to provide and let's say the child is asking for something else, I would say to provide a quote unquote boring food where, you know, you're not saying, oh, son, you don't want to eat your mashed potatoes. Okay, I'll give you an ice cream cone. It's, oh, you don't want to eat your mashed potatoes. Here's a banana. Here's something else that maybe isn't boring or excuse me, maybe isn't so exciting that you're learning that, oh, if I don't eat dinner, I get my favorite thing, you know, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I saw somebody saying something similar to that. I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but they said, if your kid asks for a snack before bed, offer some type of fruit or vegetable, because if they're really hungry, they'll eat the apple. But if they know right before bed, they always get the animal crackers or something, then maybe that's going to cause them not to eat the dinner and then wait for the animal crackers type of thing. Right. Exactly. It's really, you know, I want to be sensitive in that I don't want to demonize any of the fun foods. Like, I believe all children can have access to all foods, um, you know, barring financial concerns, but from a health perspective, all foods can fit in a kid's diet. But when it comes to helping them learn how to eat enough at a meal to stay full, I would agree with that, that if they need a bedtime snack, I'll rephrase in that if a bedtime snack is a regular part of your day, that's fine. You can build into their schedule. They know they always get a snack at bedtime. It can be a balanced snack with multiple different foods. Awesome. If you don't typically have a bedtime snack, but then all of a sudden your child starts asking for something at bedtime and you start to think, oh, they actually aren't hungry. They're just wanting a little fun treat. Yeah. Maybe sometimes you can let it, let them have it, but I would encourage you to again, provide the more like quote unquote boring snack, whether that's a piece of fruit, a glass of milk, really bland crackers, something that just isn't giving them that same reward that teaches them, oh, if I don't eat my dinner, I get my favorite thing before bed, you know, mm -hmm. um, which can be really 
challenging and it actually goes against a lot of how I might work with an adult because an adult has the ability to really think through these things of, oh, let me sit with myself. Am I hungry or do I just want to treat? And maybe sometimes you just want to treat and that's fine. A child might not have that ability to walk through that, to decide what do I need right now? And that's why it is, you know, the parent's responsibility to make those decisions that will help the child in a positive and nurturing way. Um, it, it can it can be a lot, and I recognize that though. I want to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a company I've been impressed by for years. Thrive Market is an online shopping platform that offers thousands of products at twenty-five to fifty percent off retail prices. For just $60 a year, you get access to a wide variety of premium pantry staples, supplements, beauty products, and home goods at unbeatable prices. To put things in perspective, I save about $20 to $30 per shipment, which means my annual membership fee pays for itself after just two orders. My favorite part about Thrive Market is that for every paid membership, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So not only do you save money on your purchases, but you also make healthy products accessible to everyone. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. I know someone who had a challenge where their five-year-old was not eating dinner, not asking for a snack, but then waking up every night, super hungry mm. in the middle of the night. And then that's disruptive, obviously, because then yeah. everybody's up. And so then with that child, do you then encourage some dinner to remind them, you know, you're going to wake up really hungry? I mean, what do you do in that situation? Oh, I love that question. So that's where the, you know, the guidelines that I give for the general population might differ from what I'd recommend to a specific child having a specific concern. Um, my side tangent being that if you have a child who has a specific concern like that, talk to a professional rather than looking for the advice online, because the advice online is that general public blank statement advice. Mm. So anyway, that being said, with a child who's waking up at night frequently, First, I would chat with a pediatrician just to rule out the fact that there aren't any medical reasons for that, like from a blood sugar perspective or anything else. But if all things check out from a medical perspective and you really believe that it's nutritional, that's when I might use more strategies of trying to encourage the child to eat more before bed, whether that might be making a more quote unquote fun, more palatable snack at night to encourage them to eat, even if they're not hungry or to increase the caloric content of the dinner in a way that, you know, the child might not seem super obvious, like not necessarily just having them eat three cups of potatoes, but maybe to add extra butter to their potatoes so that they get more of the calories in that way. Mm. And if that helps them stay asleep at night, then awesome. But again, that would be very dependent on the child and kind of divorces from what I would recommend to the general public. I know you talk about the division of responsibility and I don't really even think I understand what that means. Can you describe this philosophy? 
Oh, happily. Okay. So the division of responsibility is based on a lot of research. So based on research from the 80s, the 90s that are showing what is the parent's responsibility and what is the child's responsibility in feeding. So all of the research came together by someone named Ellen Satter. So she is the um, founder of the Ellen Satter Institute, and she coined the term division of responsibility. So the division of responsibility states that it's the parent's responsibility to decide what food is served and when food is served. So what is going to be at dinner and when we're going to have dinner. It's the child's responsibility to decide if they're going to eat, what they're going to eat, and how much they're going to eat in the sense of here's the food the child has access to. That is the parent's responsibility. The child's responsibility is to decide what foods on that plate they're going to eat, how much of each different food, and if they're going to eat at all. And so following this division of responsibility is what can be so useful for, again, helping the child stay in tune with their hunger and fullness cues and learn autonomy around eating in a way that has the, the boundaries set by the parent that will help the child ensure that they're well-nourished, really. Hmm. Is this kind of research in reaction to or in accordance with the childhood obesity epidemic? Is it really trying to help kids understand when they're hungry and when they're full and when they can stop eating? Or is it completely separate from that? Yeah, I would say both. You know, it. a lot of the research is about body weight regulation, whether that be from in a overweight or underweight perspective, a lot of the research says that following these types of practices can help a child achieve the weight that they're meant to achieve really and achieve health in that way. This type of feeding also helps kids develop a wider variety of taste preferences. So what foods kids like and don't like are largely genetically determined, but there are certain practices that can encourage kids to like certain foods more than others. So allowing the child to decide what they're going to eat without putting pressure on the child might help them be more comfortable in trying foods that they maybe feel a little afraid of or don't typically like, like vegetables tend to be the big one that we talk about. So, you know, to bring it back to your question, I would say, yes, it has to do with body weight, but then it's also so much more than that about generally just helping kids develop a well-rounded diet or what in the research we would usually say is like quote unquote high diet quality. Yeah. Cause I work with so many adults on nutrition and weight loss and even myself, I don't think I even realized for years and years when I actually felt truly hungry, when I felt full, when I should stop eating to feel my best. I mean, this is something I think a lot of adults struggle with. So like you said, it's interesting because we don't necessarily know if it's biological, if we kind of lose that as we age, or if some of it is from practices we learned in childhood. Right. It's probably, you know, in all likelihood, one of those both and situations right. where, you know, this isn't my total area of expertise. So I would go on to assume there are perhaps studies that look at different hormones that regulate hunger and fullness as we age, how they might fluctuate. I won't touch on that again, not my area of expertise, but just from talking with parents regularly, I hear so many of them say, oh, well, when I was growing up, I was forced to eat the vegetables before I could get a cookie. I 
learned that I couldn't get away from, I couldn't leave the table unless I ate. I had to sit at the table for three hours if I refused to eat the vegetables on my plate. And all of these practices that really just start to teach you to disengage from such a young age, coupled with all of the culture around us talking about restrictive diets and eat this, not that. And, you know, it's no wonder that we learn to disengage by the time we're adults. So, you know, I think that awareness that you can build as an adult can help you, but also help your kids. So Mm -hmm. like you do, Brooke, in the weight loss space, it can help parents regulate their own hunger and fullness cues and then pass those skills onto their kids as the parent becomes more aware of it too. Vegetables have come up a few times. I'm wondering, (laughs) are there certain kids who are just picky eaters and will be lifelong picky eaters? Or is this, is not being a picky eater something you can teach a child? So again, it's kind of a, a both and situation in the sense that picky eating is largely genetically determined and developmentally normal. So we recognize that children have varying levels of sensitivity to bitter tastes starting from the time they are in the womb still. Like there are all these crazy studies of the mother eating certain compounds and watching how the fetus responds. And you can really see that they have unique tastes compared to each other. It's really crazy. And that carries through childhood and into adulthood that what one person likes, someone else might not like. Um, we also recognize that young kids tend to like more things and they get more picky as they age. Meaning by young, I mean in that very young toddler stage, like when they're first getting introduced to foods, a lot of parents might report that their child likes to eat a variety of different vegetables. And then all of a sudden their child gets to around preschool age and then they hate everything. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be developmental in the sense that as the child gains more independence, there's almost a biological protectiveness where their sensitivity to bitter tastes increase, kind of to protect them from grabbing things and putting them in their mouth as they suddenly become mobile enough to be running all over the place. Um, That being said, there's a lot of practices starting from the time a person is pregnant all the way into the time they have a child who they're feeding meals regularly that can help reduce the risk of picky eating and then address picky eating once it's started. Um, so yeah, it's complicated in the sense that you can't necessarily prevent your child from being a picky eater, but you might be able to reduce the risk and reduce the severity with different feeding practices. I'm sure there are dozens, hundreds, but what are some of your favorites? Yes, there's so many. I would say my favorite and the one that might be the hardest is to be as neutral as possible. And so rather than constantly asking your child, like, try the broccoli, try the broccoli, try the broccoli, I encourage parents to simply leave the broccoli on the table. If the child will tolerate it, put it on their plate and don't say anything and continue to do that repeatedly over time. And having that neutral space takes a lot of the pressure off the child. Cause you know, if picture yourself sitting at a table, there's a food that you've never seen before. You have no idea what it is, what it's going to taste like. And someone is hounding you to eat it. The more someone hounds you, the more worried about it. You're going to be like, Oh, if it's this big of a deal that I have to eat it, it must be terrible. So I think having that neutral attitude around food can really help. 
in addition to that, I kind of alluded to it, but just repeated exposures and modeling can be incredibly powerful. So we have a lot of research to show that it can take a child 10 to 20 plus times of being exposed to a food before they begin to like it, if they begin to like it. And so a lot of parents have this understandable feeling that, all right, it's been three times I've given my child broccoli. They won't eat it. I'm done. I'm not getting broccoli anymore. When in reality, that's probably not enough times for a child to become almost desensitized to it. So a way that parents can continue to expose kids to the food is to eat it themselves and have it consistently at the table at a mealtime. And then the effect of that is twofold. One, the child sees their parent eating it. And most kids like to model their parents. They will copy anything they do. And then also the child is continuously exposed to that food so that it continues to become less scary to them and less pressure. And then maybe one day they're just randomly going to get curious and stick it in their mouth and you carry on. What about the kind of old school approach of broccoli's trees and eat the trees? Do you encourage stuff (laughs) like that? Like making, like having food be fun or is that now not recommended? Yeah. I definitely recommend food being fun. You know, I wouldn't say like, it's a tree. You have to eat the tree, but maybe just like playing with the food is something that a lot of kids tend to respond really well to. So if a child is really worried about food, you can even do this in a completely non-food setting, almost like a science experiment where you take a food and you explore it and you feel it, you smell it. Maybe you draw with it. Like you use the broccoli as a paintbrush where the fuzzy top is like the fuzzy top of a paintbrush. Um, You can just work on feeling it. Maybe you touch it to your mouth And all of these exposures to the food are helping the child become more comfortable with it and helping their sensory system really become more used to the sensory feeling of that specific food. And so, and it can just be fun and kids love it and it can help them interact with food and learn about food in a way that's not broccoli is good for you, eat broccoli, but more fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in evidence-based sustainable weight loss. If you're ready to stop yo-yo dieting and start living a healthy, active lifestyle you're proud of, I'd love to work with you in one of my programs. Unlike restrictive, one-size-fits-all diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed nutrition and lifestyle habits that work for your unique likes, dislikes, and time constraints so you can lose weight permanently, have high energy throughout the day, feel completely in control of cravings, and stay consistent long-term. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Health Investment. I've also heard from parents that phases are short-lived with kids, whether it's some type of talking back or biting phase or not sleeping, or one day avocados are their favorite, the next day they hate them, but then three days later, it might be their favorite again. So it sounds like you just kind of ride out the phases and just keep exposing And eventually maybe they come around or come back around. Yeah. Which I know can be so hard. I think a lot of us, you know, myself included, I'll be the first to say that I love to have control over everything I can. I am type A through and through, but with feeding kids, 
it's really a challenge to let go of that need to control because kids have their own way of doing things. And a lot of the time they are not going to be, they're not going to be bossed around. They're going to do what they want. And Mm -hmm. I do think that learning how to ride the waves can be really helpful in taking the pressure off feeding your child. You know, so many parents feel like every meal, every day, every week has to be perfect from a nutrition perspective. And understandably so, they get worried that what if my child develops a deficiency? What if they're not growing properly? What's going to happen if they're only eating chicken nuggets for three days? When in reality, nutrition can be looked at from a much wider lens than a single meal, a single day, a single week. And so if your child goes through a little jag where, again, all they eat is chicken nuggets for three days... I wouldn't necessarily worry unless they're only eating chicken nuggets for weeks to months, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that can give parents a little bit of reassurance that nutrition, you don't develop a deficiency in a day. You don't develop a deficiency in a meal that happens over time. And so those short periods of time, if you can just ride it out and trust that your child is going to come back around to a bigger variety of foods later, then that's great. If they aren't coming back to a bigger variety of foods and they are continuing to really struggle and have a very limited set of foods, like under roughly 15 foods would be a general rule of thumb. That's when you're getting in territory where working with a feeding professional could be really helpful. What I see a lot is parents giving their babies and toddlers just the meals that they're eating. So you know, cutting it up in sizes that works for them or pureeing it if that's appropriate. But it's basically you create one meal and you serve the same meal to the child. But then when the kid starts getting more savvy and they've tried (laughs) chicken nuggets or grilled cheese and they can talk more and they have more opinions, what do you do if you're creating the meal for the family and then the kid is just demanding, I'm only going to eat a grilled cheese or I'm only going to eat chicken nuggets? Like, do you go and create a separate thing for them? Or do you just say, this is what we're having? Oh, that's so hard. And it's a story I hear a lot when kids first go to preschool, for example, they, maybe they were in a home where the family ate a certain way. They go to preschool, they taste school food and they're like, whoa, (laughs) what have I been missing? (laughs) And then they come home they're like, mom, you got to listen to what I tried at school today. And then that's all they want. Um, I would recommend that parents continue to hold to the division of responsibility whenever they're able to. And to say, you know, let's say you make a lasagna, maybe not lasagna. A lot of kids don't love mixed foods, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep with it. A lasagna. And then your child is saying, I want chicken nuggets. I don't want this lasagna. The parent might then respond and say, this is what's at the table for dinner. Maybe we can have chicken nuggets on Tuesday. And that way you're not saying chicken nuggets are bad. Chicken nuggets are off limits, but you're setting that expectation that the parent decides what is going to be eaten and the child decides if they're going to eat and how much. So that would be my general recommendation. Again, if your child is going multiple days refusing food or it's a very consistent pattern or they seem to be in a lot of distress when they're eating the foods you provide, again, that would be a more reason to explore things with a medical professional, but for the average child who's just refusing food because they found something new that they really like, I would say to incorporate that food they really like on occasion when you feel comfortable doing so, say 
maybe every couple of days you can throw chicken nuggets on the menu and that's fine. But otherwise to stick to that division of responsibility that parent decides what food is being served and when it's being served, child decides if they're going to eat, how much they're going to eat. And so then if you're serving lasagna and they've never had lasagna and they decide this is disgusting, I'm not eating it, you would also then serve something they've been exposed to that they like. So like berries or something with it. So that right. they eat the berries and skip the lasagna. They've had a really light yeah. dinner, but then they'll probably have a big breakfast. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So like, let's say that lasagna was a new food and I want to introduce it to my five-year-old. I would say, okay, he's never had lasagna before, but what does he like? I know he loves, like you said, berries. So why don't we have lasagna with berries and gosh, I didn't think of another food off the top of my head. Maybe like a protein food, for example, yeah. <laughs> like something other than a chicken nuggets is what I'm thinking of, but maybe chicken nuggets. Sure. And then if you have all of those options at the table, the child knows, and you know that there's going to be enough food for the child to be satisfied. But so therefore they won't starve if they don't eat the food that you're introducing them to, but they'll have the option to try that food in a low pressure setting where again, they feel safe that they have other foods they can eat too. You brought up protein and I'm glad you did. I think there's so much more awareness now as adults of getting enough protein, getting enough fiber. What are the protein recommendations for kids? Is that something you should be kind of calculating at different stages of life? Or is it just try to serve a protein with each meal? I would say that I generally wouldn't necessarily recommend calculating it. If parents, you know, are really worried, the general rule of thumb from the dietary guidelines is that children consume about 10 to 30% of their calories from protein. But the thing is, when I give that number, what trips people up is they don't realize that protein comes in so many different foods. And so that number is actually fairly small with a small child. So let's say a four-year-old might only need, you know, 20 grams of protein max. I Something around that range. I did not pull that calculation out, so don't hold me to that. But that being said, you know, they're going to get that fairly easily. So kids, if they're having things like yogurt, maybe the chicken nuggets, maybe they're eating peanut butter, um, if they're eating whole grains, all of those things have protein in it. And so it's unlikely that your child is not eating enough protein, even if to you, it looks like they're not eating a lot. Like if they're not eating meats, for example, because meats tend to be texturally a little weird for some kids. So that, that's my roundabout way to say that the formal recommendation is that 10 to 30% of calories. However, if you're going to calculate that, you need to think about all of the protein from all of the different foods they eat, even if you don't think of it as a high protein food itself. Hmm. The way you're describing feeding kids, as I'm thinking about it more and more, it's different, I think, from the way a lot of us were raised but also could kind of take some of the pressure off of parents, the whole division of responsibility. If you're, if you yes. realize you're just in charge of what you serve and when you serve it, and that's your only responsibility. And then the rest yeah. is up to the kid. That seems <laughs> Pressure's <funny>. off. <laughs> that actually seems, cause at first I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, there's so much pressure on parents. And this is just one other thing, but actually that takes the pressure off. Cause if you also think your responsibility is how much they eat and what they eat, then it's, then it becomes more 
of a challenge, I guess, for parents. Is that true? Does it kind of, oh, yeah. is that how you can kind of think about it? Of I love that. Yes. Okay. So I would say definitely, you know, parents feel so much pressure to make sure their child is eating enough. I mean, and understandably, that's what we're taught that it's, you need to be constantly aware of what your child's eating. That is what everyone feels, you know, like you said in your story, when you were with friends that everyone around the table is commenting on what the child's eating. Everyone's thinking about it. I couldn't tell you why, because we don't do it to adults. So why are we doing it to kids? I don't know. Um, but when you can really settle into the division of responsibility, it does take a lot of that pressure off. And if you can set the expectation with the child at first, if it's something new, it might be challenging. There's probably a rough patch where everyone is getting used to new rules. But when it gets to the point where the child knows the rules, the parent knows the rules, it really can reduce the number of mealtime fights that you're having. They'll still come up. Kids have a lot of really big feelings, but maybe less frequently because the child knows, oh, mom decides what we're having for dinner. It's not worth it for me to cry about what I want instead because I know this is what's for dinner. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I do find that mentally it can be a lot easier once you know, hey, it's not my responsibility to decide how much they're eating. Again, unless there's a medical concern going on, you can take that off of your list. And the mom decides what's for dinner. There's no use in fighting. I mean, that's kind of how I was raised. I knew what was served was what was served. So it's almost kind of old school in a way. And then I don't know, maybe there was a wave where we kind of got away from that. Cause I do have clients who will say, I make two different meals. So I make a meal from, for my husband and me, and I make a meal for my kids, or maybe they have two kids. So they make two different meals for their kids. And one of the questions they ask on the preliminary coaching call is if I want to lose weight, am I going to have to make a fourth meal just for me? So I'm making one meal for one kid, one meal for another kid, one meal for my husband. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) We do not want you making four meals. But then, you know, they continue just to make the same meal they were making for the adults prior. And maybe they're changing portions here or there of different things on their plate. But then they are still making the two different meals for the kids. So, I mean, did you find anywhere in your research, has there been a wave where we kind of got away from this is what's served and this is your option for dinner to kind of making individual meals for kids, maybe because we were so stressed that they have to be eating something. That's a good question. And something that I would have to look at the research for, I don't have the answer. Anecdotally, I can totally see the exact same thing that you're saying. I think it's, you know, it's challenging where there's just so much pressure on parents now that, I've heard from the parents I've worked with seems to be new with the newer generations of parents that wasn't necessarily the same pressure that parents maybe experienced in like the 1940s or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where the expectation was, Oh, you know, the child will be fine. And there was a lot of parenting improvement from the forties to now. So I don't want to bash everything now, but I do think there is so much pressure for the parent to be perfect and to make sure the child is happy all the time that you find yourself making all of these decisions to with the best interest of your child at heart, but that it does end up making life really stressful and really complicated. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, 
if I had a tagline, it would be that eating should be easy. Like I don't want anyone to feel like nutrition should be complicated or take over their life. And that includes when you're feeding kids. So, you know, I think it can be really hard when you're introducing the division of responsibility, especially if your kids are older, they've gotten used to a certain way of being. So maybe do it slowly, do it gently, like give yourself grace. And maybe there are some nights where you and your partner, if you have one, want something that you know the kid is just not going to eat. And maybe that's a night you give them something different and that's fine. Like if you want sushi, there's no way your child is touching sushi. Maybe you order a pizza too and you have pizza and sushi and all is fine. Um, but I do think that it, uh, taking these approaches can take some of the pressure off parents. Or at least I hope so. Yeah. What would a parent do if they're concerned that their child is carrying extra weight? Hmm. You know, that one comes up a lot. And I would say first to chat with your pediatrician, if your child has any specific medical conditions going on that would lead them to be at a higher weight than you might expect, that would be something that the pediatrician can talk to you about. So some things that I think about would be like different metabolic disorders, uh, diabetes, maybe their weight fell, then maybe they got on medication, the medication made them gain weight, maybe they're experiencing depression. There's a lot of things that I would like to rule out before getting to the nutrition. But then from a nutrition perspective, pretty much any re recommendation I would give is going to be the same regardless of the child's weight. So working with the child to listen to their hunger and fullness cues, help them self-regulate, help them be active, help them eat a variety of foods from all different food groups. That's really what I would give for the advice. You know, there are, I don't want to get too controversial, but the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics that came out, gosh, it's been several months now about the treatment of childhood obesity really caused a stir in the sense that they were acknowledging that body weight is really regulated by a lot of factors outside of our control and that some children might benefit from medications. I know that's super controversial, very much up to the parent, um, but that could be a conversation to have with a provider. But then from the nutrition perspective, really just helping the child have a healthy relationship with food and a healthy relationship with all foods can be extremely helpful. So we're not taking any foods off limits for one kid just because of their weight. Because I mean, to put it bluntly, like that's how you're going to give a kid a complex about all of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answered your question. You can ask a follow-up if you'd like, but really just that my recommendations would largely not change. Do you at any point start talking to kids about the nutritional benefits of different foods? So how important protein is or fiber just to yeah. build their awareness of nutrients in the different food groups? Totally. I think okay. with young kids, I don't find it particularly helpful because, you know, young kids are very literal. And if you're telling a child, you need to eat broccoli because the broccoli is healthy, like what, like we as adults, like don't even know what healthy means. Like, I don't even use that term really with adults. Um, sometimes I might, because it, a lot of people understand what you're getting at, but for a child, it's so abstract that it's not particularly helpful and it has not been shown to help them eat more broccoli. Mm -hmm. So for the young kids, I would say, 
it's not really worth it and could sometimes have the opposite effect, meaning that if you keep saying, eat the broccoli, it's good for you, eat the broccoli, it's good for you, they almost learn that there's so much pressure to eat the broccoli and that, oh, if it's mom and dad want me to eat this, like it must not be very good if they're putting so much pressure on me to eat this. There must be a reason they're doing this. Like they don't do that with cookies. So that's where I, where it could backfire with the young kids. I do think as they get older, you know, elementary, middle school, certainly high school, there are opportunities to learn about food more. Um, I'll, I'll backtrack to say that at any age, I think learning about food can be helpful in the sense of how does food grow? What are the names of different foods? How do you cook foods? That literally start as young as you can. I love that. It can help people, excuse me, kind of help the kids get exposed to all the different types of foods and get familiar with them. And then as they age, then you can start introducing the more nutrition side of things. I would keep it really simple for longer than you might think, keeping it at these foods help us stay fuller longer. These foods have colors which help our skin. Um, you know, that type of comment that makes it a little bit more literal can help kids understand. And I would say sticking as science-based as you can and avoiding the things like good and bad, healthy, unhealthy. And I also recommend that families try to steer away from equating food with body weight just because we know that so many kids and teens struggle with body image and disordered eating. And I just really don't want to be responsible for ha having a child develop a complicated relationship with the food that they need to sustain their life, you mm -hmm. know? So that was a long answer to say that like, yes, you can talk about nutrition, but the way you talk about nutrition changes as they age. And I would encourage you to always make it positive about what can food do that's good for you rather than positioning foods as bad. Right. So more why, why do we eat these foods rather than why do we avoid these other foods? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You put Someone it very succinctly. Eat. That was yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just synthesizing and learning from you and gathering all your information. I know I already asked you this question before in the last episode, but maybe you want to take it a different direction in terms of feeding kids or however you want to. But in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Yes, I love that. I mean, I think with kids, it's really an investment in that you're making the health investment for your kids by taking these daily small actions to help them develop a healthy relationship with all different types of foods, learn how to like all different types of foods, and learn how to trust their own liking and preferences and hunger and satiety. So I think really in this case, that health investment is just continuing to make those small everyday changes when you can, and then you can watch how their health develops over time. And it can be really remarkable when you get to watch that. We mentioned already that you have a private practice that you're building. You said Massachusetts. Do you work with people all over the country or exclusively in Massachusetts? Right. That's a great question. So okay. Right now, only in Massachusetts, because of there are very specific licensure laws when you're practicing what would be called medical nutrition therapy. Mm. So something that I could explore in the future would be offering more nutrition coaching for people in all locations. So if someone would be interested in that, you can definitely check out my website to see if there's any updates. But for now, providing medical nutrition therapy, which is covered by health insurance, mm -hmm. I can do in the state of Massachusetts where I'm licensed. 
Got it. And where can we find you? Your website, your social media? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is KillianFamilyNutrition.com. Killian is not spelled the same Irish way you'd expect. It's what has an O instead of an A. Um, and then you can find me on TikTok at family.dietitian. That's where I've been most active. I've been told I should pivot to Instagram too, but haven't made the leap yet. So I mean, it's a lot. It's yeah. Only have so much time. <laughs> you only have so much time. You can repurpose videos. If you ever want to chat about that, I can tell you how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you can definitely repurpose videos from both apps to the other, but, uh, yeah, I just feel like one social media app is enough these days. It's, it's yes. all consuming as it is. Also for everyone, I checked out your website and I'm very jealous. It's beautiful. You have <gasps> Thank a you. great website creator, I think. And shout out you. to Wix. Yeah. Was... We wait, did you do the whole thing on Wix? Yourself? I did. Oh, I did. so it was somebody else I was talking to that had help. Okay. Well then even better because oh, thank you. <laughs> like beautiful. And yeah, here's a, here's an ad for Wix, even though right. I don't think either of us are sponsored. Unsponsored. But, yeah. Unsponsored. They're listening. Ad. Let me know. <laughs> yeah. Which are the best types of ads, right? When right. there's no, right. nothing in it for either of us, but yeah, your website's gorgeous. Really excited about you starting this new practice. Looking forward to sending everybody your direction on TikTok. Every, what you said today, you post little one minute videos all the time of just little tips for yeah. people to know. If you want to learn more from Kate, uh, follow her on TikTok for sure. If you have kids of any age, uh, but just want to thank you so much again for being here for the second time. And I look forward to staying connected with you off air. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brooke. I appreciate it. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.